You're listening to Michael Easley in Israel. I mean, in context. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are in Israel right now as we listen, not speak, I guess. (laughs) Time travel. We've got it figured out. Absolutely. So those of you listening know that we started a series two weeks ago and are taking a journey through Israel on In Context as my dad is in real life currently in Israel with a group of about 40 folks. So where are you taking us today? Well, we're going to the Spring of the Wild Goat, also known as In or Ein Gedi. And as you uh, envision Israel, I try to give a picture in the devotional of the Sea of Galilee at the top of the country. Again, the country is the size of the state of Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And then we have this long string called the Jordan River. And at the bottom, think of a phone receiver back in the old days when we had wall phones. So we got this headset at the bottom hanging there. And that's the Sea of Galilee going down to the Dead Sea. Right to the west of the Dead Sea is an area called En Gedi or Ein Gedi, which means the spring of the wild goats. Now, we'll talk about this more in the devotion, but a little known fact, Ruth the Moabitess mm-hmm. and Naomi, and you remember the story. Uh, this is during the darkest chapter of Israel with mm-hmm. the judges judging in civil war, and Ruth is a Moabite. Scripture goes out of the way to call her Ruth the Moabitess, not just Ruth, Ruth the Moabitess. Right, right. She's not a Jew. She marries a Jewish boy, a Jewish man, and, of course, Naomi loses her husband and her two sons. And she's got her two daughters-in-law that are both Moabites. So she decides to go home because they hear rumor that God had visited his people Mm. and brought them food, brought them bread. There's a word play there, Bethlehem, the house of bread. Mm. So they're going to travel from Moab across the Dead Sea And again, if you look at that phone receiver hanging upside down, if you look at a little map, there's a tongue. It kind of looks like a rabbit's head. And that low spot is called the Lasan. It's a French word. And that little area, you could walk across it, Hmm. even in antiquity. And so more than likely, uh, Ruth and Naomi, of course, the other daughter stays in Moab. They trek across that area, and they have to go one place for fresh water in Getty. Right. So this goes a thousand years before Christ comes on the scene. And then, of course, we have the whole household of David and what happens in Ein Gedi and the spring of the wild goat. And there's no doubt in my mind that if you were a Jew who traveled anywhere south of Jerusalem toward the Dead Sea, you went to Ein Gedi. So all of our biblical patriarchs, all of our heroes of the faith, if they were in the southern part of that country, again, the size of the state of Connecticut— mm-hmm. They went to En Gedi to get fresh water because there wasn't any water for miles other than that spring, which is still there today. Yeah, I distinctly remember that on the first time that we went to Israel together and just imagining Ruth, Naomi, you know, kneeling down, grabbing water to refresh themselves. David and his armies coming to water themselves and possibly the cattle or animals that would have been with them. And one of the things that I've heard you say often is when we go to Israel and we go to certain sites, we can say, well, we're pretty sure that this happened here or there within 100 Mm -hmm. yards. But when we're at sites with water, we can know that we know that we know this is where this happened. Water doesn't move. You can't move mountains. (laughs) You can't move springs. (laughs) You can't move rivers. You can't move lakes. And so, again, think of this as the size of a small state. And it's not as though we're driving from New York to L.A. Right. Or from California over to Florida. We're going a couple of hundred miles tops. Yeah. 
and it was all foot travel. We call it the International Highway or the King's Highway. You walked where the land was easy to walk. You walked in lower areas. You didn't walk up on the craggy mountains. And from the main area of a pathway, which is the road today, up to the spring, there's actually two sets of springs, those lower and the upper. Mm -hmm. It's about a 30 to 45-minute hike, depending on how many Jewish school children (laughs) are ahead of you. I've experienced that. Yeah, it's kind of a party. And it's hot, and it's dusty, and you're in the wilderness, and this little creek becomes a wider creek and a wider creek, and you get to the top, and it's like, I don't want to leave. Breathtaking. (laughs) This ecosystem system of birds yeah, and beautiful. beautiful flowers and and of course the song of solomon mm. is set mm-hmm. in the spring of the wild goat in engedi wow so all these layers in this one spring going back to ruth the moabite to naomi to saul to david to solomon mm-hmm. you know it's all there mm-hmm. and i don't doubt christ in his lifetime probably went by the spring yeah, of sure. the wild goat at for some sure. point Wow. Okay. Well, I want to jump into the program, but one more thing that I want you to talk about. What is the animal that we see scaling the mountainside in En Well, you have two. You have the hyrex, which is the little furry guy that's kind of coy and hides. Oh, kind of like a prairie dog? Yeah. It's more like a prairie dog, but a lot cuter. The other one is the ibex. It's got a beautiful rack of horns. And think of a mountain goat like you've seen perhaps on television or some Discovery Channel or the Rockies. And they can run up a crag. In fact, it's very common as you walk up the first part of this park, we'll sit down and have a time of devotion and reflection before we send people up to the spring. And it's very common to see one, a little guy, in like minutes, they go up. Scale the <laughs> probably, whole Probably wall. 350, 400 feet up this ravine. Yeah. And if we were to walk that, it would take us a whole day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they just you know run up the side of it. And so we get the picture of the footing. Isaiah talks about hinds feet in high places, the stronghold and the footing and how God's made creation. So you have the hyrex and you have the rock badgers, the conies, the ibex. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty uncommon that you don't see them while you're there. Unless, mm-hmm. of course, it's really hot. Mm-hmm. They tend to hunker down in the shade, but all at the spring of the wild goat. And that's what I remember being so in awe of the ibexes agility and ability to take on this insane incline and thinking, oh, that's what the Lord does. He makes our feet steady on the ground. It just really revolutionized the way that I read that verse. Absolutely. From then on. Absolutely. Well, let's take our journey to Engedi. Now, as our journey in Israel continues, we're going to head toward the Dead Sea. Now, let me give you a picture of the nation of Israel. It's about the size of the state of Connecticut. We often think about nations in these large areas in the Middle East. Israel is a tiny piece of land pushed up against the Mediterranean Sea with enemies on all sides. Essentially, the line would be from the Jordan River, starting at Galilee, going all the way down to the Dead Sea. Think about a phone hanging off a wall, the old-time phones, not your cell phone. Think about an old-time phone on the wall, and the cord goes down to the bottom. That phone on the wall is the Sea of Galilee, and the headset down at the bottom would be the Dead Sea. That line would be the territory between, essentially, Israel and Jordan for the most part. So everything west of there is Israel. So we're headed down along the line of the Jordan River, which is more of a creek at this time of year, and we come to an area by the Dead Sea known as En Gedi, or the Spring of the Wild Goat. 
more than likely Psalm 136 was penned from this area. This goes way back into antiquity. We can pick it up in David's time as a teenager. David would have known this area well. The caves of Abdullam are known well in this area. Now, the reason the spring of the wild goat is important in Gedi, it's an oasis in the middle of a desert, of a wilderness. So it's on the west side of the Dead Sea, and it's a place everyone knew there was good water. And you can go to this day to the spring of the wild goat, and you will be amazed at the little ecosystem. It's almost like an aviary. As the spring comes out of the rocks, you'll see all kinds of plant life and all kinds of birds that just not even 10 miles away, you will not see them because of the arid desert Judean wilderness climate. Let's go back in history to the time of King Saul and the young teenager David. Saul, of course, had failed as a king. Early in his reign, he did not wait on Samuel to come and offered the sacrifice. And you remember that sequence where he grabs on to Samuel's robe and Samuel pulls away and it tears a part of his robe. And Samuel says to him, paraphrase, just as you've torn my robe, God has torn the kingdom from your hand. And this begins Saul's complicated reign as a failed king. Now the story progresses and David, of course, is minding his own business as a teenage shepherd. And he's going to confront Goliath. For 40 days and 40 nights, the giant came out and accused Israel, choose for yourself someone to fight me. And of course, if I win, then Israel becomes the slaves of the Philistines. If Israel wins, then we become the slaves of the Jews. And everyone was terrified. Of course, the choice should have been Saul. He should have gone out and fought Goliath. But for many reasons, of course, he's not going to do that. Well, David, as a teenage boy, shows up at the battle line. You know the story. He gets the five smooth stones. He kills Goliath. He uses his sword to take off his head. It develops into a friendship between Jonathan and David. There's a little bit of a tension early on between David and Saul. Obviously, this young upstart has won this great victory, and the crowds begin to see the prospering of David, and they sing a chant, Saul has slain his thousands. David, his ten thousands. And of course, that doesn't sit well with Saul, and he turns against him. What you'll find if you read through 1 Samuel are these great chronicles of David and Saul being depicted in very similar but very different ways. You'll find Saul often with a spear in hand. He's a huge man, remember. And you'll find David with harp in hand. Well, David's going to marry Saul's daughter, Michael, for 200 foreskins. And of course, that's a wonderful story for you to read. Saul's suspicion continues to grow of David. It turns into fear. And finally, he wants to kill him. By 1 Samuel 19, he's given orders to try to kill David. David's going to run. David and Jonathan are going to make a covenant. As the plot thickens, all this time, David is trying to be honorable to God. He knows he's been anointed king. He's not sure exactly what that means, obviously. But he wants to honor God's anointed, Saul, but he also wants to do what God would want him to do with integrity. Well, at En Gedi, there are a number of things that occur. David is going to flee to Nob, an area of Abimelech, the priest. You remember, he'll take the consecrated bread and eat it. He'll take Goliath's sword from the priest. He'll be on the run to the caves of Abdullam. We don't know the precise location of Abdullam, but we do know they're in and around the area of En Gedi. 
And by 1 Samuel 22, David's got a band of 400 marauders that are with him. And the English text says they're distressed, they're discontented, and they're in debt. (laughs) The three Ds. This is his army. So they're following along with David. David doesn't want to fight against Saul, but nor does he want to be killed. Well, David will then hide his mother and father in an area of Moab. He will go into a forest. He will be on the run, and Saul will not quit. Finally, Saul hears that David visited Ahimelech, where he ate the consecrated bread and got Goliath's sword. He goes in to question Ahimelech, and because of his dissatisfaction, Saul orders the murder of 85 priests, and he decimates the city of Nob. The irony, Saul wouldn't kill Agag in the beginning of his reign, but he's unafraid to kill 85 of the Lord's priests. Well, David is continuing on the run. He goes to the strongholds in the hill country and the wilderness of Ziph. And finally, in 1 Samuel 24, we have the face-to-face encounter with David and Saul. So let me read you 1 Samuel 24. Now, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. That's where we're talking about, the spring of the wild goat. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day which the Lord said to you, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me, because of the Lord, that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose and left the cave and went on his way. Now afterward, David arose, went out of the cave, and called after Saul, My lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you. But my eye had pity on you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see, indeed, the edge of your robe in my hand. For that I cut off the edge of the robe, I did not kill you. Know and perceive there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me, 
and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good and return for what you have done for me this day. Now behold, I know you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul, and Saul went up to his home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. It's a long chapter, but I want to point out a couple of things to you. Number one, the repetition of hand and the words cut off. A number of times in the story, his men say, look, God's given him into your hand. And then David rises up and cuts off the edge of the robe. David feels bad. I can't stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. You need to read it yourself and see these comparisons. But on it goes about hand and cut off and hand and cut off and hand and cut off. And finally, don't cut off my descendants, Saul pleads with him. So what's going on in this cave scene in Engedi? Engedi is a water source, an oasis in the wilderness. Water is life in this part of Israel. Without it, you die. And so scurrying around the rocks, hiding in the caves of Abdullam, Saul hot on the heels trying to kill this upstart David, David being more righteous than Saul, we see this full circle scene. When Saul was anointed king, he did not wait for Samuel to arrive to offer sacrifice, and the robe being cut off at that point from his hand, Samuel making the prophecy that God's taken the kingdom away from you, just like you tore my robe, all the way through to this final scene where David cuts off the edge of the robe. I doubt David put that all together at the time. I'm sure he did later on, that it was God's hand on him to be king, and it was God who gave a kingdom or took it away. And all these and many more stories occur around the area of Engedi and further south to Masada, David's stronghold. Let me suggest three lessons from this passage. Number one, just because we obey and follow God does not mean we're going to be exempt from trouble. Poor David is anointed early. He's a teenager. Little does he know what his life's going to be like. And yet, much of his early years are going to be nothing but trouble and running from Saul and trying to make a defense of who he is. Why do we think that because we love God and obey him, our life will be free from trouble? Number two, God is more concerned with your and my faithfulness than he is your or my success. I think part of the challenge we have as Westerners is we think if we do this, then God will do that. If I obey, if I love my wife, love my husband, if I do the right Christian things, then God's kind of incumbent to help me, to bless me, to make me successful, and whatever that might mean. I would encourage you, and as I try to encourage myself, God's more concerned that I'm faithful than I'm successful. In fact, I would suggest if you and I are more pursuant on being faithful, 
we won't have to worry about what success means. And third and finally, tread lightly when speaking about other Christian servants. You know, it's easy in the Christian community to be critical of one another. There are those we disagree with along the continuum of evangelical, fundamental, Bible-believing Christians and all sorts of other ways we can describe our motley bunch. But I've had to learn, and I hope you continue to learn, that we need to speak kindly about other Christians even when we disagree with them. I mean, what a great illustration from David's life. In some respects, he could have easily killed Saul. And probably, at the end of the day, not that big of a fuss would have happened. I mean, yeah, he lifted his hand against the king, but he had those 300 men with him all egging him on. And he says, no, far be it from me. I'm not going to lift my hand against the king. Even though he's trying to kill him, even though he's listening to false reports about what David's doing, David says, I will not lift my hand against a king, even a flawed servant of God. A good reminder for you and me to be kind and loving and considerate of other people with whom we disagree. Well, what lessons can you learn at the spring of the wild goat? Take a look at your text in 1 Samuel 24, and better yet, come to Israel and see it for yourself. This is Michael Easley in Context. If you'd like information on traveling to Israel with Michael in 2018 or 2019, send us an email at info at michaelincontext.com with the subject line, Israel. After all, it is God's will for your life to go to Israel.